Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the 4Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek, and in this episode, I'm joined by Tom Doak. Tom is a golf course architect and designer with several courses on the Golf Week Magazine Top 100 You Can Playlist, including Pacific Dunes and Old McDonald at the Bandon Dunes Resort. He's also designed golf courses in places like Tasmania, Australia, Scotland, New Zealand, some of which are most, you know, the most picturesque, gorgeous things that you can possibly imagine. In the podcast you're about to hear, Tom and I talk about how he got started, the influence of Pete Dye on his career, and how golf courses and golf holes are actually designed and made. We also talk about how he makes golf courses for people to enjoy that are not necessarily ideal as venues for things like the U.S. Open or major championships. And we also talk about how studying golf course architecture and design can really help you play a lot better golf. So sit back, relax, and let's peg it up with Tom Doe. Now making his first appearance on the Four Press Podcast by GolfWeek.com, I would like to welcome Tom Doak. Uh, Tom Doak is a golf course architect and golf course designer. Uh, we will get into his many, many amazing golf courses, faraway venues. I can only dream of the frequent flyer miles that Mr. Doak has <laughs> racked up over the years. How many golf hats do you own? Because I would imagine at each one of these different venues, like you get the swag or you feel obligated to, to show up wearing the appropriate logos. You must have like gazillions of these. My wife made me give away about 50 golf hats the, a couple months ago, so I only had 50 still there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, I mean, and, and not just like, you know, Meatloaf Mountain National. I would imagine these are the ones that you, you go through the airport, and I play this game usually every Monday after the Masters or the Monday after the U.S. Open. You head to the airport, and you see everybody's got, you know, the stuff that they went to the merchandise tent for. So you see the Augusta National logo or the Masters logo or the, oh, yeah. you know, Tory Pines and all that. The savvy move is that to take a look on some random Tuesday or Wednesday and see if you can spot something that's a little off the beaten path. Oh, there's stream song, but you happen to be in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and somebody's sporting that one. Or, or here's, you know, every once in a while I sort of see the little whirling thing, um, you know, from Whisper Rock. And I'd be like, oh, most people have no idea what these ones are. What are some of your favorite golf club logos and some of the ones that you've worked on that are more unique? What, what, what tickles your fancy? Uh, actually my all time favorite one was from Glen Abbey in Toronto. Cause it took me a minute to get it. It's like a little line drawing and it's just, it just looks like a little swirly thing, but it's a, uh -huh. it's a monk swinging a golf club. Perfect. It's very cool. It's, it, you know, you have to know the history of the property in order mm -hmm. to get it, mm -hmm. but I thought it was just super well done. And awesome. yeah, you know, it's not just logos, but even like the names of golf courses. I mean, at least half the time we start working on a new project, it doesn't have a name yet. Right. And, you know, some of them sound really easy after the fact, but it can be like pound your head against the wall. Like even Pacific Dunes, it took months for somebody to come up with that name. 
And, you know, we all thought about it, thought about it, thought about it for a long time. Nobody had anything good. And finally, a, a, a guy who came to visit said, what about this? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, where, where, where the hell have we been for all? And a lot of it, it's headline writing oftentimes is the same in magazine work. You, you take a look at a magazine for, for people who still read magazines. And there is a science to that stuff. If you happen to be in a Barnes and Noble, if you look at a newsstand, they like to have numbers on them that, that are odd numbers. So it won't be 20 ways to fix your life. It'll be like 43 as yeah. if there was like some like master yeah. plan that we, we were able to squeak in that one more tip to get it to this weird number that you're just not going to believe or lose 38 pounds in 17 days. Those they have studied, they will arrest people's eyes and they, they like to have big, bold headlines and pretty people on there and such. Um, getting back into golf course architecture and design, I have been sort of circling this and really looking forward to this conversation for a while. And that is coming from a person who went to St. Lawrence university, speaking to a Cornell guy, which <laughs> after our hockey seasons and such like that doesn't come easily. So I'm going to preface this and I'm going to be promised to be on my best behavior. After you left Cornell, you earned a scholarship that gave you the opportunity to go over to Scotland and study golf courses and golf course architecture and to caddy if I'm not mistaken, at St. Andrews. Were you a good caddy? I had never caddied before I was there. So <laughs> this, scholarship, this scholarship was, you know, Cornell is supposedly, their motto is a place where any person could pursue any study. So there was this graduate from our landscape architecture and floriculture program. We were in the floriculture department who put an endowed scholarship towards somebody who couldn't study exactly what they wanted to in school. You know, and I went there wanting to be a golf course architect and everybody said, well, landscape architecture is the closest thing you can do. So I did that. But, but I, you know, all the way through school, I was like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to apply this to golf and, and taking different courses in my spare time. Uh, so, the, I mean, the thing was really written for me, but I didn't know that they would give a scholarship to somebody to go to the UK and play golf for months on end. So I... You know, I got every letter of recommendation I could from people in the golf business, from Ben Crenshaw and Dean Beeman and Herbert Warren Wind and just crazy good application and got the award. So it was basically a cash grant toward going and traveling around and seeing things. Um, somebody I knew knew the superintendent, the old course at St. Andrews, and I was going to work for him for a summer mm -hmm. as, my, as my first bit before I started traveling. And then when I got there, this is the summer of 1982, and they had a terrible recession and the coal miners strike and just everything was going wrong. And I got there and Walter Woods, the superintendent, was like, look, it's a town course. I can't hire you to work on the crew because they'll kill me. You know, there's so many people out of work in town. And not being a local. Sure. And he said, I've talked to the caddy master. He'll get you out every day. It's a great way to learn the golf course. You know, you can hang around me all you want, which I did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd go out morning and evening and take pictures of the golf course and caddy, you know, after the guys who were trying to make a living at it got out first thing because they wanted to get right. to. And it was the perfect way to learn the old course. And, you know, and I learned a lot, not just about the old course, but about caddying and, and how much of golf is here. You know, I still giggle oh. watching the tour and, you know, listening to the caddy, you know, even if he thinks the guy has the, is doing the wrong thing that, you know, the talk is always positive. And yeah. the last thing he says is that's the perfect club, <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. That's the way to hit it. <laughs> yeah. And you, and you hear the announcers and the, and the analysts are like, always leave your, the guy's always positive, you know, like always leave the player. Like if he yeah. thinks it's a six iron and you know, it's an eight, 
sell him on that six. Make sure that he's he's hitting it positively. And um, so I've had a chance to go to St. Andrews well a couple times, and I played it just once. I went in 2006. I went to cover um, the Open Championship when it was at Hoy Lake, and went with at the time one of the great Sports Illustrated photographers, a guy named Fred Vuich, and I'm like, hey, look, they had just given me a video camera because at that point people were just getting fast enough internet to be able to warrant shooting video. I'm like, well, if we're going to spend money on a plane ticket, let's pop over to Carnoustie where they're going to be in, in 07. You get some photographs that we're going to use in Sports Illustrated and Golf Magazine, which is where I was at the time. I'm going to capture video on this thing and we'll have it for next year. It's worth sticking around for a couple of days. My alternative, you know, ulterior motive, of course, being to, to play golf, just like every other golf media jamook out there. So we play there, and I go in the lineup as a single at St. Andrews with borrowed clubs because British Airways had oh, yeah. lost my bag. So I had running shoes, borrowed clubs from the captain of the club at Carnoustie, who couldn't have been a nicer guy. It was great. He drove me down at like 5 in the morning. I found ended up getting out at like 2 o'clock with a couple other singles. <laughs> It was great because it's it's July, so it's daylight is not a problem in the in the least. Um, yeah. And it was the very first time, Tom, that I ever broke eighty. I ended up shooting seventy eight on the old course, having no idea half the time where the hell I'm hitting the ball. I'm like, this seems like a good way. Let's go that way. And um, making birdie, par, birdie, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen for seventy eight. And from then on, like it's been a love affair ever since. Uh, it's just to me like it was love at first sight. And what was your impression when you show up at St. Andrews? I mean, had you been to the golf course before you were a caddy there? Did you know? Obviously, you knew about it. You wanted to be a golf course architect. This is one of the sort of things that you have to study. I, I knew but how- about it, and, and, and I'd actually gone there with my parents when I was like 15. We did a little trip to Europe and just yep. spent a couple of days at St. Andrews and Glen Eagle. So I, St. Andrews was the one place I had been before. But okay. – but, you know, it was still like, you know, it's such a complicated golf course to learn it as a caddy takes a while. And, you know, and to learn it for different people, you know, it's one thing if you're only trying to understand it for yourself. But if you're trying to understand it for a 25 handicap and a really good mm-hmm. player, there's a ton of, you know, it's like all the things that you've got, you've got to know are different. Yep. So, so it's really, it's really a complex golf course. And, you know, some people love it at first sight. Some people don't really get it at all and just shrug their shoulders. And it's like, oh, must be about the history. But, <laughs> you know, once you get to understand it a little bit, uh, there's nothing else like it. It's because it's so complicated. And because, as Bobby Jones said, you know, you have a plan on the tee and then you miss the tee shot by like 10 or 15 yards of where you're trying to hit it. And you need a new plan from there. Yeah, it's um, what what were the courses while you were there on that scholarship and on that program, um, that ended up influencing you the most? I would assume it was St. Andrews, but maybe that's not a fair assumption because I would assume that you saw just about all of them. Oh my God, I saw I saw 172 golf courses in here of traveling around, <laughs> and you know, and I you know, it was sort of like you know, most places just welcome you with open arms, and even if they made me pay, it cost nothing to play there 40 years ago. Yep. I mean. I, you know, the, the old course at St. Andrews was the most expensive course in the UK in 1982. It cost 15 pounds to play. Yeah. So, you know, so it's basically free golf all around the UK, you know, go to Bally Bunyan. You have the run of the place. You know, if you, you know, I, I mean, I, the first time I showed up at Bally Bunyan, uh, this, the, the manager, I spent about half an hour with talking with the manager. He just sent me out as a single, like, 
two holes in, there's like three guys just booking it, playing really fast behind me. So I, you know, I let them come up to play through and they said, oh no, the secretary told us you were out there. So we were coming to join them. And, you know, and I'm in a four ball with two of the, two of the club's best players and one guy who played internationally for Ireland. I've, I haven't played in <laughs> groups that good in my life. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, I learned a ton from a ton of golf courses and it's hard to okay. single them out, you know, more than anything. I mean, being there for a year, I just, I just got to understand their attitude toward golf and how different it is than America or for sure. most other places in the world. You know, how it's more, I mean, it really is a natural game over there. And it's, you know, they treat it more like recreation and exercise than a sport. They, yeah. You know, they do have a sport. It's a sport, too. If you play on the weekends, you're going to play in some metal competition or something, whether you like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, their their attitude toward what it is and how expensive it should be and how exclusive it should be is just completely different than America. Well, there's a couple of things there that I actually wanted to talk with you about. And let's, let's go with the cost thing first. Does it frustrate you as a golf course designer and architect that to get onto and to get exposed to some of the most influential and impactful courses that we have here in the United States, it's typically very, very expensive. Does that bother you? Yes, but it's a it's a really fraught question because I also know how much it costs to develop a new golf course. And yeah. you know, and the numbers have to work. I mean, nobody's gonna build Pacific Dunes if they if they lose money on it. Yep. So so you've got to, you've got to find that balance. But then it's not really about that balance. It's about capitalism and what the market will bear. And mm -hmm. once a place like Pacific Dunes gets famous, of course the price is going to go up. And yep. you know, I mean, I looked the other day. Golf Magazine just came out with one of those lists of the the top yep. courses you can play. And you know, looking through it at three hundred dollars for resort guests or two ninety five and more for outside guests. The courses at Bandon are still a bargain relative to a bunch of the other courses a, in the top twenty. They're they're like four, five, six hundred dollars. It just blows my mind. When you when you factor in the the price of the loop, for example, at Pebble Beach Golf Links, which I still say every golfer should Absolutely. play at least once because yeah. it's it's a light you'll that we'll we'll talk about like sort of what goes into courses and what is meaningful for you. For me, if there are a few courses that I can remember every single shot that I hit. Um, and the, the first time I played Pebble Beach, I can re I could bore you to death with every single one of these things, and I didn't want it to end. Like I, I would have played nineteen twenty, and which to me is the ultimate compliment that I get. But tack on whatever it is for that loop, plus a night either at the lodge or at Spanish Bay or whatever, you're in easily with you know, for over a grand to have that experience, and it's just simply not yeah. something that every golfer is going to be able to save up and to be able to do, which. I get the part of the capitalism bit because that that that's reality. And when you consider that uh, the cost for St. Andrews was, you know, whatever it cost to build that golf course was paid 500 years ago. Um, yeah, you get a little bit of freedom that comes along with that. The other thing, though, when when you were mentioning that that those three guys who catch up with you, um, how would it change things if you were designing courses knowing that the majority of the golf being played would be match play? rather than stroke play, where people went out for a match, which is typically what they're going to do over in the UK, as you alluded yeah. to, rather than a golf course where we're going to count up strokes and consider uh, handicap for that. How does it change it for you? 
Uh, to be honest, I design mo- most courses to thinking more about match play than stroke play. And that's why, some, that's why some good golfers <clears throat> don't like my golf courses so much because one bad bounce could cost them a couple of shots. You know, in match play, you can have the most severe thing in the world. I mean, you know, one of my favorite golf holes in the world, it's an utterly simple hole. There's a hole at North Barrack that you play, you play up the fairway, and then you kind of hurdle a stone wall, a little three-foot-high stone wall to a green on the other side. If you played it right, you play your tee shot kind of close to the wall, and then you're just going over it like, you know, you're hitting a 100-yard shot, and you just have to keep it just left. But if you play away from the wall off the tee, now you're going more over it and have to stop. So, you know, it's it's not a severe hazard. It's, you know, it's only three feet high. But if you hit the wall, bad things are going to happen. So it's way scarier than mm-hmm. than it should be. And it's, But it's only way scarier in stroke play. In match play, you hit the wall, it's like the worst. You just lose the hole. I lost the hole. But, but in stroke play, you can make a six or a seven on it, what's normally a pretty easy hole and be pissed off for the rest of the day. And, you know, I think that's a great hole. And to, to like, not build holes like that just because of that stroke play mentality just would not sit well with me. So, I you know, I tend to just, you know, close one ear to the complaints about from, from really good players. You know, it's like, if the, you know, if the average person can't play the hole, that's different. I'm not going to do that. But if it's just like frustrating to a good player, that's like that's what we're going for, kind of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's, and that's one of the hallmarks of your sort of designs. And I want to get into that in just a second about having an ability or a way for less skilled players to navigate the same terrain, different strokes, maybe a different path. But there are safe ways to play the hole if you choose to go conservative and you can sort of check your ego a little bit. If you choose not to do that, right. you're taking on more risk and maybe don't have the skill to pull it off. That. That's on the player, in in my opinion. You um you work for Pete Dye. How did you end up working for him? How did that come to be? I wrote him letters from the time I decided I was eighteen years old that I wanted to do this. I just kept <laughs> you know I write him two letters a year, like you know I'd like to you know uh, this is what I want to do, and everybody in this business says you're the one I should work for. Plus, you know, one of the first courses I'd ever seen was Harbor Town. That was one of the things that got my interest in golf course architecture when I was like. 10 or 11 years old. So he was the, but he was the natural person to write to. I mean, there was nobody else in the eighties that was the guy that you'd want to learn from. And everybody else I wrote in the golf business, I had a ton of help. I just, you know, I just randomly wrote letters to people all across the golf business. And most of them were like, Oh, you never heard from somebody that wanted to do that before. So they gave me a ton of advice. And, but everybody said work for him because not only because he's a great designer, because he's actually involved in building the golf courses and you kind of need to understand that part too. So So finally, after like three years of writing him letters, I get home from school at the end of my semester and the next day I get a call from Pete Dye at my my parents' house. And I never talked to him before. And he's like, yeah, we're building a course in Hilton Head. We're kind of short a crew. Do you want to come work? Can you be here tomorrow? (laughs) Wow. uh, well, I'm in New York, so it's day after tomorrow, okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let me. Uh, yeah, I, I worked on this Long Cove Club at Hilton Head was the first construction project I ever saw. And I worked there for like three months in the summer. So what did you do? Uh, I started out raking sticks. Pete would always like go back to that when I saw him later in life. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, eventually, because I was really good at doing math in my head, um, 
when we when he was shaping greens and we were doing like the final finish on greens somebody's surveying that to make sure that the slopes aren't too much mm-hmm. and you know i would run the transit because i could tell him how much slope there was from there to there instead of just reading out numbers um so you know i got you know and i kind of understood what we were trying to do you know a lot of the guys on the crew were not he didn't really hire architecture students there weren't many to hire and he didn't really need help anyway yeah you know so most of the, so most of the crews were turf interns you know okay. going to school to be a superintendent and they all thought it was funny as hell that i wanted to be a golf course architect and two of them are like golf course architects now so go figure yeah well so you do that and one of the things that as people start to google around who may not be aware of of all of your courses and sort of the breadth of your work pete right. dies Golf courses, generally speaking, are known to be, and I find them visually intimidating. There's a lot of yeah. manipulation of the land. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. You think about TPC Sawgrass is one of the more visually intimidating golf courses that people are going to see on television You know, every single year. The PGA Tour goes there yeah. for the players. Casa de Campo is beautiful and gorgeous, but hard. The ocean course at Kiowa, very, very hard. Um I don't know sometimes how much manipulation goes on, or how much th- those things go in there. Your style looks a lot different from his. So my question is, how is it working for him who has a certain style or has comes to be known for certain things in the way that he designs golf holes and golf courses yeah. when it would certainly appear that your personal style and taste is very different? Well, so I didn't have a design style when I was 21 and I started working. <laughs> oh, you didn't? Oh, well, you know, come on. No, I hadn't figured that all out yet. <laughs> Slack. You know, I kind of knew what I'd seen a bunch of good courses by then. I kind of knew what I liked, but you know, mm-hmm. for as to what I was going to do on my own, I had no idea. Um, you know, you're right that P- Pete like deliberately tries to intimidate players, especially good players. He's like, cause mm-hmm. he's like, that's the only thing you can do. You know, they, they, they never hit more than a seven iron into the green. Their average seven iron is within 15 or 20 feet of the hole. You can't put the hole any closer to the edge of the green than that. So oh. there's not much you can do to make it hard for a really great player except get in their head. You know, and, and you know, one of the projects that I worked on for him, he had me do the drawings for the, the uh, stadium course at PGA West, which was mm. supposed the client wanted that to be the most intimidating, hardest golf course in the world. They said they said in our first meeting, we want it to be so hard that people in Japan that have never been here will complain about how hard it is. That's that's crazy. Hold on, time out, time out, time out. I'm throwing the flag. Is that am I the only one who thinks that's nuts? That's that's not the way it should be, is it? That was you know, those guys, those are the same guys that developed Oak Tree and you know, the stadium and everything else at La Quinta Hotel. And they were all hard golf courses. They were two golf pros. Uh-huh. They thought that's, you know, and it's, it's true that back 30, 40 years ago, hard golf courses were the, were the ones that attracted attention. There was right. more attention paid on that. And that tide has shifted over the last, over the last 40 years. So I'd, Peter, I'd like to believe I had a little to do with it. No, I think you had quite a bit to do with it. Peter Costas wrote a column for Golf Week a couple of months ago now at this point, talking about distance and how at some point there was a shift, according to him, in the 50s and 60s when good golf course started to mean hard golf course and that the desire on people who had land and had property and wanted to develop courses is 
if I want to be put on some of these prestigious lists, whether I want to be on Golf Week's Best Modern or the, the best courses you can play, if you want to be on these best lists, then it has to be just like beat your backside hard. And it needs to be long because the longer well, the hole there. is, the harder it is. And so it sounds like you agree that there was, at that time, that was the thinking. There was. The very first one of those lists, Golf Digest's original list, yep. was the 200 toughest golf courses in America. Not right. the best, the toughest. Hardest, yeah. Yeah. And and, and, there, and that was always, you know, to this day, they they call that resistance to scoring in their formula now. But it's always it's the most important factor. It's the one thing that they that they really emphasize. And they, you know, they get a bunch of two handicap players to judge golf courses. You know, everybody wants a golf course that's challenge. You know, if a golf course is not challenging to you, it's not interesting. You know, okay. if it's just simple, it doesn't matter where you hit it. You know, you're not going to think it's a great golf course. So but it, there has to be the challenge there, but it has to be appropriate to the players, too. Thank you. And because obviously wait, wait, there's a huge spectrum of players. Yeah. If, you're, if you're running a resort like Pebble Beach, you know, it's not just about the tour. It's about the wealthy people that come pay $500 every day. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, it's that, and this is where there is the art mixed with the science of what you do is that designing a course that is going to be challenging and stimulating to somebody who is a scratch player and yet is also enjoyable and leaves a smile as they walk off the 18th to somebody who struggles to break 95, but is willing to pay the whatever, like to get to do it. Yeah. That's hard. Like that, that's not an easy task. That's, yeah, that's the hard part. That's exactly right. And they're, they're two different things. And, you know, I remember when I was working for Pete one time, he said to me, you know, he said, I think it was after one of the TPCs at Sawgrass that, you know, the, the players were like complaining. He shouldn't design for us. He should design for, you know, they were embarrassed by how hard it was for them the first mm -hmm. couple of years. And there was a lot of pushback. <laughs> and, you know, one day Pete looked at me and said, of course I design golf courses for good players. You can't design a golf course for the average person because you don't know where they're going to go. No, <laughs> he, said, exactly. he said, you know, after two shots on a par five, uh, the average player could be anywhere. And yep. I started laughing because I was thinking, yeah, he could still be on the tee reloading. It's <laughs> true. And his first shot in the trees. <laughs> it's, it's, it's totally true. So let's talk a little but, bit about, yeah, okay. You know, so I took the, but I, I took a different thing away from that. You know, I took, I took from it that, okay, those players could be anywhere. So you have to like, you have to like kind of keep them in the game somehow. You know, you have to assume that I mean, no matter what hole you build, you go, okay, I'm building a short par four and it's only 320 yards. But there's some poor guy that's going to be hitting a forward into it for his second shot because it's not a short par four for him or because he popped up the tee shot or whatever else. And if he's got nothing to do, you know, if, if the only thing he can do is hit it in the water from there, that hole sucks. Yeah, I, I ran into this a couple times. I was recently, and I'm not going to ask you to comment on the golf, golf course, but I was I had my first chance to play Wikopa back in February. Um, okay. And I played the Saguaro course, and I played it with another guy who off the tee, I, I hit the ball, I carry the ball off the tee about 240 yards. So fifty. I'm 50 years old, still have a little bit of speed. Um and I can play it, and I love playing a golf course that is around 64, 6,500. It's fun for me at that point. I bring it up, though, because I played with two women who, on two different holes, chose not to even hit a tee shot 
because they knew that from the the most forward tee boxes that the golf course offered, which is where they were playing, and they took lessons and golf was their thing. They had clubs. They 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 were going through moves where you could tell like they were being coached on how to play. They couldn't carry the barranca or the waste area, the wash between themselves and the very first piece of rough, not not fairway, but but the rough. Right. And so in one case, the, one of the women's like, oh, we're just going to walk up the 18th hole. And I'm like, hold on a second. You're, you're not playing. This is a beautiful golf course. We're on this gorgeous piece of property. And, and I love desert golf. I've always just found it fun. And it really made me think. It was one of the first times in a long time when they said, well, we can't play this. I don't have a club in my bag that will get me from the, for, from the most forward tee box to this place, which to me, that's a problem. You know, I understand if someone's brand new to the sport, they've been playing two weeks, like, okay, there's some inherent challenges. However, I will give credit on the same golf course. The ninth hole is a par three where the woman turned to me, same person. She's like, it's so much fun to play a par three where I can hit a pitching wedge. And I had played the, that par three with, I think it was eight iron a little was bit further like back yards for them. What was a pitching? Like, 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 yeah, it was like 75 or 80 yards. The front of the green was unprotected. So if it needed to roll up, they could. The pin was, as I recall, to the right side, and it was, it was behind a bunker. But they had a very clear, unobstructed path with the, appro- with the appropriate club. And it just made me sort of think really about design in a different way. I have had the luxury of not having that happen to me. It's got to be really frustrating, though, for people. When you're designing golf holes, and this is where I sort of want to get into some of the, the courses that you've worked on personally. But from yeah. a really basic standpoint, how do you decide how many tee boxes to put in is that your call is that the owner's call whoever's going to have their how do you decide that uh good question it's it's sometimes it's a back and forth with a client i mean i tend to be old school and only want to put in three or maybe you know mm-hmm. three or four i mean you know there are some holes where you'll see like oh it'd be cool to have a tee over there too and and have like lots of different options but actual sets of markers i'd rather only see I'd rather see it, the course rated with four, but but them only put out three markers on any given day. I mean, like if you want to find all the way back, you can find that pretty easily. Mm-hmm. I don't need to put a set of black markers there. And if mm-hmm. I don't, then I can take the blue markers and put a couple of them on the back tee for variety. But, you know, it's like, I mean, I mean, Americans are the worst about it. We're well, I guess Asians too. They're like they want they want everything set up exactly the way it says on the scorecard, or at least they think they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, in truth, you know, nearly every course is rated and the slope done from further back than you will play it if you go out there tomorrow. They have the markers up on like five or six holes to get sure. people around. Yeah. People don't want it. You know, you said sixty four hundred yard golf course, so. It's very typical that you'll you you know you'll look at the card and say oh that's the white tee is sixty four hundred yards it's going to be shorter have it than that set up at sixty one hundred because yeah. they you know because exactly what Pete said about the the uh, stadium course at PGA West he said you know if we make a if we make a course that's hard for the pros at seven thousand yards most people ought to play it at like fifty eight hundred but they would never play it at fifty eight hundred so. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to like lie to him and say it's 6,200 well, <laughs> and it's, then play it at 5,800. And that's, and that's what courses do. Well, I, it's funny because it's the same philosophy that golf equipment makers had for a long time. It's, go, it's starting to go away where they would fudge 
the loft number on drivers on the bottom of golf clubs where it would say nine and a half, for example, for, and this was primarily in the eighties and early nineties, but it would always, almost always be like 10 and a half or 11 because they knew that the ego for a lot of guys would get in the way and they wouldn't play the 10 and a half degree driver. So they just gave it to him anyway. And they gave him the benefits of a little bit more carry distance and a little bit touch more spin. And that was what they really needed to do. Has the USGA talked to you or have you talked to the USGA or the RNA with regard to all their stuff that they're talking about with tee boxes and distance and, and all this. And what's, what's your feeling about the conversation that's been going on for the last, well, many years as it relates to distance, having a disproportionate effect or a disproportionate uh, role in golf at this point? Well, I'm a little bit of an outsider. Like I'm not part of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. I think they consulted with the architect societies a little bit, but honestly, not that much. I don't think even they had a lot of input. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, I think the USGA and RNA wanted, it saw that as like, oh, they're going to be seen as biased in it. So, you know, we just want to collect a bunch of data and stay relatively neutral instead of pulling from places where people have already staked out a position which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I'm a big believer that sooner or later they're going to have to bifurcate if they want, unless they want pros to just play an entirely different set of golf courses than everybody else does because they hit it so much farther. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. when you see, when you see DeChambeau looking at like going to the ninth hole on the TPC at Sawgrass to play the 18th, Yep. Where he can't even make the fairway, but he could hit it in the rough and then go straight over the water instead of playing alongside the water where he might pull it left in the water. That's, you know, he died, did not visualize anything like that at all. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody did, you know, and the, and the funny thing is, you know, some kid had done that in a junior tournament like two years before. That's where DeChambeau figured out maybe I should try that. Is yeah. it was some kid who carries it 350. It's to to me, in some ways, I see it as like there's an evolution of athletes and the way that we look at sport analytics is playing a much bigger role at the elite level. And I think it will start to trickle down to some degree to the recreational players. I mean, they're using laser range finders. They're using GPS devices. They're shot tracking systems that are starting to penetrate the market. People are going to start to make, I hope, smarter decisions about playing golf. And that may change the way that they approach different stuff. I don't think that I'm going to try and go over the water um, at Bay Hill any decade soon, I, I promise you I'm not going to do that the way that Bryson did. I'm not going to carry it 365 in the air. Um, but in some ways, it's almost like the, you know, the, there's this cat and mouse game that continually goes on, and the cats get smarter, so the mice have to get smarter, and, and everything sort of keeps going around. Well, I mean, but really, it's, this, it's the same problem as you were talking about five minutes ago with the women golfers. Mm-hmm. Just flipped over. So, you know, designing for the average woman golfer and the average man golfer, that's like you designing at two different scales. Mm-hmm. You know, you, can, you said you carry a 240 off the tee. But, you know, when you're 70 years old and still playing golf, you're going to carry it 180 to 200 yards off the tee, maybe, if you stay in good shape. Let's, let's, let's now, pray. We're you know, so, so we think about, you know, those are the people that most golf courses are really designed for and we think about. You know, back in the day, nobody thought about the woman who could only carry it 100 and, you know, or even less than that. You know, fortunately, I, you know, I had two good learning sources on that. 
one, Alice died. I, I was going to say Alice died. Had to great yeah. player was really adamant. Most women are not good players, and they can only you know this is their physical limit. And if you don't give them a way to play the golf course, the game sucks for them. Yeah. And then you know, and my mom was that player. You know, so so I so I've understood that from the beginning that there are players who can barely get the ball in the air, but they really like being out there and enjoying nature. And you should give them a way to enjoy it instead of just making them pick up half the time. Now, you know, the difference between that average woman and you now is the difference between you and Bryce on the other end. You know, it's just a completely different way of looking at it. And unfortunately, like, Almost no golf courses were designed thinking about somebody who could hit it that far. Yep. So you start to see things break down where, oh, this hole really doesn't work anymore if you can carry all of that. Or, or well, shit, that's dangerous. He's going to take it right over that other hole mm-hmm. or whatever. And it's like, do we really, is, you know, is that what we really want? Is that what we really need? Or do we do we need to fix every golf course on that basis? God, I hope not. By the same token, you know, I mean, I got to a lot of my success by not paying much attention to what happens on the PGA Tour. I, I think know, that has to be the way. Golf courses for everybody else. I don't worry about them. Yes, I know some of those guys. They're friends. If they come play one of my golf courses, I want them to have fun. And I, I want him to see a few shots that challenge them, but I don't care if they shoot 64. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want them to be engaged while they do it instead of just bored. Well, um, yeah. You know, but, you know, but I'm not really thinking about, you know, what's the winning score going to be for 72 holes if they play a PGA Tour event. This, this course I redid in Houston last year, Memorial Park, where they play the Houston Open now, that's really the first time I've taken on that, thought level of okay we really are we're we're working on a public golf course that does 60,000 rounds a year and we're going to have the pga tour show up every year it's a tough ask that's that's a a, tough ask that's a tough ask (laughs) which is yeah it's there's all kinds of ways as you're sort of talking about that it's making me think of that that aforementioned open championship i went to at hoylake i'm pretty sure tiger woods winning score was 19 under par that year it was the year that everything was baked out yeah. The course was totally browned out. He hit the you know one driver all week, and it was two irons off there, and it was it was great. And no one cared that the winning score was nineteen under par. That was just you know he happened to beat Chris DeMarco that year by a shot or two. Who cares? It was a magnificent championship. He displayed a lot of skill. So nineteen under wins is is the winning score. I think that the folks in Far Hills would have you know, a, a heart attack. If somebody takes it to that level, if somebody's, if you have that many players at a U.S. open who are taking it that deep, but I don't think it bothers, thankfully the RNA one little bit that the score is the score. And that's maybe just a different attitude. Maybe it's me reading it wrong. I don't know, but, um, yeah, I think it even bothered the RNA a little bit sometimes. I mean, they, they clearly are more, accepting of the idea that golf is an outdoor game and the weather has a lot to do with the conditions if, and yeah. sport. You know, if you, and when if you don't get wind, those courses are, their primary defense is gone. They're going to rip it up. Right. And this, yeah, the same golf course two years later, the, the winning score would be 10 shots different without them doing anything. And yet at the same time, 
even most of the courses on the open rota have gotten changed and bunkers added 320 yards off the tee in the last 20 years mm -hmm. to try to deal with some of these changes. Um, so it's not like they're, it's not like they just let it roll off their back and they don't care. They're still working at it. The USGA, you know, I think they go back and forth on it. I don't think they're quite as controlling as most people make them out to be, but Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, they got this thing, and I still have arguments with people who insist that the whole mantra of the U.S. Open is, is supposed to be a torture track. It's the identity of the U.S. Open is supposed to be Wingfoot 1974 every time out. And, you know, most of the players hate that. You know, they, they don't mind playing a hard golf course, but they don't like playing a course that just gets embarrassing. And well, and yeah, I've had this conversation with a buddy of mine who lives out in Colorado every year where his favorite tournament is the U.S. Open. And he wants carnage. He wants blood on the greens. He wants that whole bit. And I get it. And for one week a year, if they want to really just, you know, throw as much hot sauce as they can and, and take the greens and sometimes make mistakes with it and push it over them, like, okay, I get it. To me, it's it's not as enjoyable an experience to watch that. I, I can watch that at my local course, watch guys get beat up. I, I I love to see more okay, you you're in a you're in a bind here. Demonstrate with a recovery shot. Show right. me show me something. And and you've talked about how recovery shots are really the area that separate the most elite players. They get to show creativity and skill. Right. But at the same right. time when yes. you when you're when you're designing a golf course, you want to give you know, that 15, 20 handicap player options. Like, okay, you're in the junk. I'm going to give you a path. It's, it's not going to lead to par, but it's going to lead to, you know, something. Whereas mm -hmm. the elite player, like, okay, you're not in a great spot. Show me how good you are. I'm giving you the opportunity to shine. And from a, from a design standpoint, how hard is that to do? A lot of it's just about being willing to make hazards that are pretty difficult and not, and not back away from that when, when golf, you know, when good golfers object. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of it is being willing to put enough conjure in the greens and around the greens that it really matters where you miss. Mm -hmm. I mean, what makes Augusta a really hard course is because missing three feet above the hole is bad. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, so, so the players aren't aiming at the hole. They're aiming five or 10 feet short mm -hmm. of the hole to make sure they don't get above the hole. And now by, by doing that, they've got a, you know, they're bringing the Creek into play or they're bringing real hazards into play. Um, that's the tension that you've got to get. If, you know, if you just let them, if, you know, if, if there's no tilt in the green and it doesn't matter which side of the pin they're on and they can just aim right at it for 72 holes, somebody's going to shoot 20 under par. That's, yeah, and, they are that good. And we've, we've seen that when you get the weather conditions just right when Rory McIlroy wins a congressional, the golf course is damp. There's virtually no wind. We have seen it at a couple other major championships when you get no wind soft and these guys, you take the fear and the intimidation out and now it's just target practice. They rip right. it up. Um, but which, most of the players will tell you they don't like that. You know, wow. they refer to that as a putting contest. You know, right. everybody's going to hit it close all day. Whoever makes the most 10 footers is going to win. So talk to me about Pacific Dunes. That is sort of, I'm not going to say it's like your kickoff point, but in 2001, that golf course opens. Um, it's the second course at the Bandon Resort. Um, it's gorgeous. I've had a chance to play it. I'm looking forward to going again in July. What, what did it take to, to build that golf course, and how challenging was it, and I mean this in the best possible way, Tom, to not screw it up? 
you know, a lot of people have asked me, wasn't there a lot of pressure there, like going after the first course that was so highly ranked already and just mm -hmm. working on a beautiful site? I was just, I just like laughed at that. It's like, no, I mean, you wait your whole life hoping you'll ever get a piece of land that good to work on. So we were just excited to get at it. I mean, okay. it, I really, at the time I thought I will never have as good a piece of land as this again. You know, I better make the most of this. But I, it, I didn't say, say that to myself, like putting weight on my shoulders. It was just like, this is serious. Let's do something really cool here. And it, you know, it's, it's a spectacularly beautiful piece of ground. You know, you, you almost never see where the second golf course somewhere turns out better than the first one. Mm -hmm. And usually that's because the first architect had his choice of where he, where he built the course, you know, and band in that script was changed a little bit because Mr. Kaiser did not own all the land for Pacific Dunes right, right. when they started building the first golf course. They, they acquired it in the middle of building the first golf course. And David Kidd, who built the first course, was like, well, can I change my design now? And Mike <laughs> said, well, you know, I'll let you change some of the holes you haven't built yet and go up in the corner of this a little bit. But I'm no, you can't just take it all. We're going to do another golf course up there. Yeah. But so, so I, you know, so I, I lucked into like not being relegated to the second best bit of the ground. At least I had, you know, I was kind of on even footing, if not better footing. And honestly, you know, the, I mean, to David's credit, the hardest thing about building Bandon Dunes was that the gorse was literally 10 feet high when he started and just trying to get it out of the way, they had to tear up a lot of what was underneath. Yep. And for the second course, it was an accident. People accuse David Kidd loves to accuse me of starting the fire that burned a lot of Pacific Dunes before we built it. Now, because that that fire could have got out of control and burned down the resort you too. Know, accidents um, happen, you know. When, but you know, somebody started a fire on the beach, and it it burned like most of the golf course down to the nub. So instead of a big gorse bush that you couldn't see what was under it. There was just this little charred stump left over, which meant we could like preserve the ground contours. We could clear exactly where we wanted to clear and just let the rest grow back. Um, we could really see what we were doing better. And yeah. that really helped. So for people who may not be aware, how do you build a golf hole? I mean, like your style of golf courses tend to be something that looks like it was always there, which in some yeah. cases, it, it that's true. It was always there. In some yeah. cases... You move some things around. You, you're good at your job. You get some guys who can move some dirt. But how do you actually build a golf hole? Um, well, a big part of it's like figuring out the right place to put the golf hole so you okay. don't have to change too much. But, you know, in the case of Bandon and in the case of a lot of my best work, we were working on pretty sandy soils. You know, it's just like kind of being in a giant sandbox. Okay, this is the, this is the perimeter of the hole. Mm -hmm. You know, Within that perimeter, it's like if you if the if if you want to change something that's right on the edge, like there's a big dune coming down and you don't have enough room, it's too narrow. So you want to change that dune, it's really hard because it's really hard to tie into that and not make and and not have it look like you changed something. Right. And right. that's the goal. Right. Right. Now, now, if that dune is would you could have a big dune right in the middle of the hole and I could just take it away. And there's no trace of it left. You'd never know. So, so the trick is like where you do have to do something. Understanding like 
you know, how to make that go away is a big part of it. But, Mm -hmm. but the, you know, the, I mean, the actual building of the hall is just like playing around in a sandbox shape and stuff, either with a bulldozer or sometimes you leave in tractors or, you Mm -hmm. know, like the last, the polish on the greens we'll do with like a bunker rake with a blade Mm -hmm. on it to just do that last inch or so. Yep. How, how um, and then you know and then there's still a lot of like drainage and irrigation stuff that goes on you know between that you know we get it just the way we want it and then they tear it all up to to do all that infrastructure stuff and then we have to finish it all together again and seed it and then mm-hmm. wait a few months before it's ready to play so this might be a question that i would ordinarily ask to like cheech and chong but what's your favorite kind of grass <laughs> um well, different grasses grow in different places. Like you and can't, that, right. you know, what, what, what I love at Bandon Dunes, the fescue and the fairways, which is like you see in the UK that the ball bounces and rolls forever. Yeah, yeah. You can't grow that south of the Carolinas or Oklahoma. Those are all either Bermuda grass or Zoysia grass. And that's because, of, and that's because of the temperature of it. There, that, that, yeah, that can't, it, it can't withstand it. Okay. Heat and humidity, both. Uh, okay. But in the, you know, in like cool northern climates, like northern Michigan, where I live, or the UK, or northern Europe, or certainly Bandon, um, or even like, you know, even though most of Australia is like Bermuda grass, you know, Melbourne gets pretty hot in the summer. But at Barnbugle, we managed to do fescue for the fairways there, and it worked fine, you know, because it's, it's on the coast and it stays cooler. If it was mm-hmm. 10 miles inland, we probably couldn't have done it. Got it. How much would it change your job and the way that you design holes and the way that you sort of use different things that would typically be at your disposal if American golf fans were open and maybe embraced brown golf courses? Um, you know, I mean, I like to think I try to design to allow for that mm-hmm. regardless because you're not only doing it you know, hoping that they get those conditions where it's more bouncy and it helps the average woman, you know, weak players are helped much more from firm conditions than really good players are. Absolutely. Best players, they, their main advantage is that they can control what happens when it lands and they spin it so well that it lands and stops pretty fast. So when it gets really firm, that's hard for them. The average player doesn't want it to spin. They wanted to keep going as far as it could go. Yeah. Yeah. They're thirsty for distance. You know, I mean, I've had like tons of women come up to me and say they shot their all time career best score at Pacific dunes or, or one of my courses because the fairways are relatively fast and, you know, and they don't have to carry much in front of the tee and their tee shot that normally goes a hundred yards might go one forty. It's a huge difference to them. Yeah, Um, absolutely. So it, it, you know, so it's funny. It's like even the hardest, probably the hardest golf course I've ever built is Sabonic in Long Island, private course. It's Agreed. next to the National Golf Links. <laughs> Agreed. In Shinnecock Hills. Jack Nicholas was my co-designer. The client wanted the thing to be really hard and challenging. Um, and you know, and I get a lot of friends who play it, and a lot of these panelists guys are like, "Oh, that that course is ridiculous. It's too hard." You know who likes it? like the wives of some of the members who I know, they're like, Oh, I love that golf course. And I'm thinking, okay, so, you know, great players have a problem with this, but you're just fine with it. 
And I, I finally figured out, well, you know, most people are just playing it too far back. Yeah. You know, if you just if you just played it at a length that you're comfortable with, it would be okay. And the women do. The the game for me became a lot more fun when I took up the edge of when in doubt, I'm going forward. Like I'm yes. not gonna like I'm not yeah. gonna get pressured into playing sixty eight hundred yards anymore. It it means I'm wearing out five irons and hybrids into par fours and it's not a fun day. Um right. I, I I have a confession to make in that um Pack Dunes is not my favorite golf course at the sure. property. Um which I can tell you actually feeling okay because old McDonald is. Um yeah. I, I I love that one. Can you tell me about the construction of Old Mac so, and how that? Yeah, before before that though, I just want to ask you. I mean, have you seen a lot of McDonald and Rainer's courses? So you have an affinity for those particular golf holes, or not I, really? Not not especially. Not as much as I wish I I had. I mean, I've gotten some exposure. I've been very fortunate with this gig as a Golf Week magazine course raider. Um, I do pretty well in the Northeast and through the Mid Atlantic. I have had a chance to play some of. The, the courses that you're sort of referring to and such like that. But, but to me, it, it was remarkable. I played, so I showed up when I went there the first time and I played Bandon Dunes. Then we played Trails. Then we played Pack Dunes. Then we played Old Mac. Uh, the mm -hmm. Sheep Ranch was not there at, at that point. It was there in legend, but I wasn't cool enough to know about it. <laughs> um, so when I get there, the remark, the most remarkable thing to me is that how within a geographically, a relatively close, proximity to each other, it feels totally different. The openness and the vastness of old McDonald, it felt like a really big ballpark. The greens were yeah. the biggest greens I've ever seen. Um, it was just this big open expanse and it, it just hit me. I didn't shoot my best score there, but I, I had a smile on my face the whole damn time. Um, there were some parts because it happened to be blowing just especially hard when I played back dunes that, it wasn't silly golf, but it was something that my game being primarily in the Northeast, it's, it's such a transition for me to play the shots that you really need to play. It doesn't come instinctively to me. I could get away with it a little bit more, or I was able to at least that day on old McDonald. So that was the one where I was just like, I could play this, I don't know, every day, but I could play this a lot and be very, very happy. Um, when you were working on those two courses, again, in, in geographically in such proximity, how how were they different experiences for you laying them out and designing and putting them together? Well, I mean, like I said, for Pacific Dunes, that was kind of like, I mean, I thought that was the perfect piece of land for golf, the variety of the terrain that we had to work with. And, mm -hmm. and let's not mess that up. And, you know, I mean, it was inspired by places like Bally Bunyan, but it was inspired by, you know, green complexes or, you know, I've seen all the best parkland courses in the States too. So there's a lot of that in there too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, old McDonald, we had, you know, sort of the advantage of, you know, so they were built 10 years apart yep. and, you know, you know, we're able to look at what we did and, and how successful it had been. And it was like, okay, how can we make it different than that and still make okay. it cool? So okay. one of the ways is, you know, it's longer, but it's, it's super wide. It's like, you can't lose. A oh, you could, you could put an aircraft. People, that's yeah. their favorite thing. It's like, yeah, you know, no matter what happens, you can still go find it and probably hit forward from there where, wherever you are. <laughs> yep. Um, you know, so it's not really punishing on that end, but it is hard to get the ball close to the hole. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I feel like it plays a little more like a links course than most of my other work because more of the greens, 
it feels like the greens more more of them sit on the ground like a real links course instead of like being built up a little bit with bunkers around them. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's some that are, but but less than most courses that I've built, and that's you know I think that's kind of an underrated part of it that makes it cool. It's it's a cool experience. Was there ever any temptation, or was did the word come down from Mister Kaiser that you weren't going to move the tree on three? Uh. There's that no, one? I mean, yeah, there were there, there were actually two trees. There, there oh, was what? one that was just they were like goalposts, and the, the one on the right was was a, a smaller tree, and it was just like a little spire. Uh-huh. It didn't have any shape to it at all. And you know, we considered leaving both for a while, and you know, I was like, yeah, hitting a field goal from 150 yards, it just seems a little gimmicky to me. <laughs> you know, the one on the left is the the reason we left it both because it's cool and because you know that's kind of the line to the green, so yeah. it's a short par four. But if you're if you're thinking you're going to try to get down there close to the green, you have to flirt with it in some way. Yep. And yet, and we kind of needed a reference point. I mean, it's a blind tee shot over a big ridge. You have no idea what's on the other side, and so you kind of need something for the caddy to say, "Well, you know, go right of that." But if you can get closer to it, that'll be better for the second shot. The, you, you do lose reference of space out there because the, it is so vast and so big. So yes, thank you for keeping that up there. It does. But, sort of I, give you but a- I have to say, I mean, I, I personally did not visualize that would be one of the more iconic things at the resort when we were, when we were making those choices. It's just like, yeah, it's cool. We'll leave it. <laughs> okay. You're, you're, so, you're, you're supposed to lie and say that you always had that in mind that it was you know definitely there. Um, now two golf courses that I have not been to, I have just drooled on okay. my laptop screen. Tara Edie in new zealand um for those of you who have not been there um now we're getting into the realm of golf porn this is starting to look like something that's just you know it's it's fantasy land if i'm not mistaken that was originally a pine forest like that was commercial logging kind of stuff how did you come into that property and and how did you end up building that one it, it was it was originally sand dunes, and then somebody 50, 60 years ago turned it into a commercial pine forest. Oh. And you know, it was it was a tribal piece of land that one of the Maori tribes owned it and made the money off the commercial off the sales. timber. They, okay, they tried to get you know they they had tried to get it rezoned to for housing development, and the local council was like, you can only build you know you can't build a lot of houses. you can build five houses on it. Mm. So they're like. So they're trying to find somebody who would develop it and only build five houses. And obviously that left a ton of ground open. And it's like, you know, we could build a golf course in five houses. That would work. So the, the, the Maoris hired a New Zealand land planner and golf course architect to try to find an American, try to find somebody, probably an American, who would want to do that. Um, he eventually stumbled across Rick Kane from Los Angeles, who developed the thing. Um, you know, Rick was one of those guys that done super well in business, starting his own like investment funds in, in the energy business years ago, made a fortune, loved New Zealand, had friends in New Zealand, you know, got to where he, he, he wanted to do it. He wanted to build a great golf course and he didn't care where it was. He, he cared a little bit, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, instead of, you know, he can't, he lives in Los Angeles. He can't get permits to do that in Los Angeles. And he actually started looking other places around the world and wound up stumbling on this fabulous bit of coastal land in New Zealand. And, 
you know, I, I knew a couple of Rick's friends pretty well. He was a member of one of my other golf courses. Actually, he's a member of two of my other golf courses. He's a member of Stone Eagle and he's a member of Sabonic. So he's life's, really life, familiar with my work. So I life's, life's pretty I didn't good. Have to, I didn't have to have a wrestling match with Bill Corr and Gil Hans and five other guys to get that job, which was mm -hmm. really nice. And, you know, from the day I set foot on the property, you know, in a thick forest where you couldn't see more than 100 yards in front of you, the, the operating question was, could this be one of the 50 best golf courses in the world? Mm. And, you know, I've played all the 50 best courses in the world, and you, you just want to laugh at that question. And at the same time, I could look at Rick and say, well, mm. you know, I built 40 golf courses, and three of them are in the top 50 golf courses in the world. They all have one thing in common. There's an ocean right there and you got that going for you. So maybe. Yeah. And, you know, but I'm still amazed that it's gotten to that height. And because we had to do so much more work, getting rid of all the trees, cleaning up the debris, burying the remains and putting it back together into a golf course and revegetating everything in dunes plants was really way, way more work than Pacific dunes or barn movement. You know, Pacific Dunes or Barnbugle, 75% of what you see was already there. Yeah. Eridi, like everything you're looking at, the conjure may have been there, but but we still had to like revegetate it somehow. Not so easy. So the ultimate contour was not by you on the last course I want to talk to you about, which is Cape Kidnappers. Um, I was at Golf Magazine when Eamon Lynch went and made the big flight and I'm, you know, came back and and showed pictures to a couple of us and I'm like you gotta be shitting me. I'm like, this, this, this looks like something that my son would have made on a video game, you know, a fantasy golf. Like you're going to go all these gorges and these fingers of land and you're hundreds of feet above the Pacific ocean. And you know, you're, I, I literally think I'm like, you're going to fall off of the back of the green. If you take two steps too far looking for a ball, like you're, you're going to be eaten by a shark or something like that and have a long time to wait before you hit the water. Um, you've talked about challenges at Terra Edie, basically, taking out all the vegetation, replanting, you get the contours, you get luck, good luck, whatever happens to happen um, with pack dunes in terms of the, the, some of the land being cleared. Just, just from a logistical standpoint, Cape Kidnappers had to have been one of, I would imagine, the more challenging projects simply because of where it happens to be and how everything is situated. Yeah, I mean, so, so the, first, the first time I went to the site, my, my plane had gotten all screwed up. So I'm meeting my famously impatient hedge fund client who, um, so when I finally get there behind everybody else, I get into the little airport in Napier and there's a helicopter waiting for me to take me to kid kidnappers so I can catch up with them because we've only got like half a day or three quarters of a day on site before we have to go do something else. And so I flew in and land, you know, saw the thing from the air. It's pretty spectacular way to see it for the first time. Landed, saw a map for the first time, tried to start trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to, you know, is there enough land here that's playable and connected that you can connect together to make a golf course work? And after a few hours of seeing that and driving around, it's, it's funny because there were, you know, it was, it was a farm, mm -hmm. you know, it's it a bunch of, uh, grazing paddocks for sheep and cows and stuff. But a couple of them were like, you couldn't figure out how to get out on that little narrow finger of land over there to see what was there. So I was a little frustrated by that. But at the end of the day, when we got done, we're getting ready to leave and we drive out and 
and to get off the site from where the golf course was back to the house, basically at the foot of the hill where we were staying, was like 30, 40 minutes on a two-track road through forest and cliffs beside you and crossing a stream about 10 times. And, and you know, I'm thinking on the way out, like, how in the hell are we going to get all the construction yeah. stuff up here to do this? And so, so, you know, when we, we did it, while they were still turning that into the entrance road for the resort, it was pretty complicated, you know. But basically, even though when we built it, like my whole crew was there and a lot of them had their wives with them. And yet we would go off for the day and be gone for the day. I mean, we, you know, it was like make yourself sandwiches up there at lunch because going back down and coming back up again yeah. took forever. So you just stay, you know, it's a beautiful place to be stranded for the day. Yep. But it was definitely an interesting experience. I can um, bet. It's not like, you know, it's a seaside golf course, but it's 400 feet above sea level. Yeah. And, and the, you know, a lot of the fairways are really natural and there's not, you know, it's not sand dunes. There's not a lot, like a heck of a lot of little rolls and movement like that. It's like a tabletop that's tilted a little bit and then boom, down into a canyon. Right. And, you know, you know, it's most of the fairways are like generously wide, except for the one long par five that's just it's forty yards wide and there's no side to miss on. Uh, but the other ones are like the other ones are like plenty wide. Where if you hit it off the one side, you know I tempted you to do that, but you were foolish to go anywhere near that because there was so much fairway. It's like why why were you aiming anywhere close to the edge? Well, but then that fifteenth hole, you know. I didn't put it on the the first plan I submitted to the client didn't go there because I just thought, well, this is narrow and people are going to lose balls left and right all day. And he's like, no, I want that. That's spectacular. I really want that. You guys worry too much about lost balls. And I'm like, do you want to put that in writing so that when yeah. people are complaining about it in five years, I can show that back to you. Send, send it back to right. that guy. I mean, that is, that's 15 and 16 or the two, you know, I used to think that the 12th hole where you're playing along the side of a sheer drop and then the, it just, it looks like you're hitting straight into the bay on the second shot. You know, that we, you know, the 13th tee is actually behind it, but we made it look like there is nothing behind it at all. Um, I used to think that that would be like the most spectacular hole. And that's the one people would talk about. People barely even ever mention that because of 15 and the tee for 16 are just so spectacular. And those are the ones where you are right on the edge of the cliff. You know, like, don't make a false step off the back of 16T. There's a fence to stop you from making that false step. Thankfully, yeah. I, it's not I, really high. It's like, you know, it's just a little, like, it's a thought three-high wire fence and, like, a 400-foot drop right yeah, on the other I'm, side I'm, of it. I'm, I'm six foot four. I'd trip right over that fence, and that would be the last we would see me. I, that, that, the pictures are vertigo-inducing. Uh, to me, it's, it's, it might be the most stunning looking golf course. It shows up great. Um, I'm hoping to see it at some point. One of the you know, sadly, what, the only thing about that place is you know, 99% of the pictures you see from it are aerial photos. Sure. And, you know, and of course it doesn't look like that from the ground. I mean, it's not like it's not cool from the ground, but it's very different. And I've had people go there and be disappointed. Well, it didn't look like the pictures. And I'm like, you're not well, a yeah, seagull. You're not, you're not taking a picture from 300 feet up. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 hopefully one day you and I can have a discussion about my, my, uh, 
my round of Cape Kidnappers. So a big reason why I wanted to have this chat with you, and I appreciate you giving me this much time, is because I had an opportunity to talk with Christina Kim over last summer, early fall. I forget exactly when we chatted on this podcast. She told me that she, she was reading and studying up on golf course architecture and design to help her become a better player. That the more that she understood how golf holes were built and commonalities between holes, that she could understand the strategy behind how ideally to play them, which sounds like something that is just so ridiculously obvious for any player to do. Yet I don't know very many players who look at it that way. Certainly not recreational players. And thankfully, not any of the guys that I play matches against. They don't think that way. Um, And while as much as I would love to keep it that way for the guys who I'm trying to win money off of on the weekends, can you give a couple of recommendations or explain to people who might want to learn or study about golf course architecture and design to better their performance, to better their understanding about how to actually play the game of golf uh, in books, any different papers, things that you've written that are out there. And, and I asked this because she was really convinced. And I, I believe it 100% that by learning more about classic courses in architecture, she could see better ways to execute shots that would lead to lower scores. And I think uh-huh. a lot of people who are weekend players, even some accomplished weekend players, they never think along those lines. They think along the lines of, okay, par four, 430 yards, it's going to be driver, and then it's going to be this. Well, sometimes yes, but other times no. And how, how would you recommend helping people who are interested in trying to get into this world to, to do it? I think it's, it's, it's not really that complicated. I mean, my, my first book, The Anatomy of a Golf Course, which is still in print 30 years later, um, gets into some of that. So I'll, I'll recommend that. But it's really, you can teach yourself a lot about it just to pay attention to the right things. So um, the number one, well, there's one big caveat. Is what I go back to what Pete Dye said very early in this conversation. It's like, you have to be good enough to at least kind of know where your ball might Fair work. enough, fair enough. You know, if you can't, you know, Tour players can hit it inside a 10 or 20 foot circle. Most of us can't do that, but, but they still like, you know, you got to know kind of, you know, where your, where your misses could be mm-hmm. and be realistic with yourself about that. But, you know, if you can think about it in those terms, then what you're really thinking about, you, you just, the simplest way is just walk the golf course backwards one day mm-hmm. and look at, look at the 18th green and look at like, if the pin is in the back of the 18th green, can I get to it easier from the left than the right or the other way around? You know, like, so the 18th at Riviera. The 18th at Riviera has that big hillside coming off the left. Right. And then the green all slips kind of away from that front and right. You know, if you've driven it left on that hole or in the left rough, there's no way you're going to hold that green. Uh, even the tour pros, they, they don't hold the green. Anything they hit... If they hit it on, up on the bank, it just stays there. If they hit it three quarters of the way left on the green, it just bounces and goes across the green right. If you hit it in the fairway in the right half, you're just playing into that slope and it's not so hard. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to one of the things I learned at the old course was that every time you saw some crazy, like, I got to putt over this ridge and there's no way I can stop it near the hole, 
It's like you got on the wrong side of a contour that if you were on the other side of it, it would help you It'd be like a backstop. So, you know, like, or those steep greens at Augusta, it's like, if you're above the hole, you're screwed. But if you're below the hole, it helps you stop and you're putting uphill. So you just have to start looking at golf courses that way. And the most important part is around the greens. It's like, you know, both like, how's the ball, you know, when the ball lands on the front of the green or short of the green and is running up there, you know, it's going to run to one side. So it helps to be playing more straight into that slope than, you know, if that slope is left to right and you're coming at it from the left, that's like teeing up way on the left side of a tee with water on the right. That just makes it harder to, you know, it's like you're aiming yourself toward it. Don't do that. Um, it is funny. Then, how, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. And then the second part of it is just like, you know, be realistic about your own game and, you know, what are the hazards around the green and, mm -hmm. you know, how much is that going to affect you? Like, you know, a, a player like Tom Watson or Seve Ballesteros who were great short game players, they didn't worry about the bunkers around the green. If, if they were in the bunker, they were going to get up and down a lot of the time anyway. So they didn't like, they didn't, you know, they would take the chance of missing in the bunker to try to be below the hole because if they were below the hole yeah. in the bunker, they still figured they were going to make four that way. Yeah. Um, we're not that good bunker players. So we, we, we are usually not. No. So not. You, you have to be realistic about your own game. But on your home course, you can do that really easy. You know which bunkers are going to kill you and which ones are not going to affect you so much. You just have to treat them with the respect they deserve. And most people don't. They, yeah. You know, most people are, you're not a scratch player. I'm not a scratch player. So we should never just think about it in terms of we're going to hit the middle of the fairway and we're going to hit the middle of the green like a scratch player is expected to do. We got to think about it in terms of ourselves. If I'm a five handicap, there's three or four holes out there. I probably shouldn't even be trying for the green in two. I should just be making sure I don't make a double boat, you know, hit a five iron short of it and chip from there unless you're bad at chipping you know that's that's where it has to get personal and you have to be realistic about what your own weaknesses are well unfortunately but that's where a good caddy comes in you know that's one of the things i learned about a cat from caddying is you know people are bad at doing for that doing that for themselves caddies are pretty good at it they will they will see your weaknesses pretty fast and they will just wow. steer you around them as best they can it's 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 much easier to be able to within about two holes probably, especially for somebody who's around the game and sees a lot of golf swings and sees a lot of temperaments that this person's going to be Mount Vesuvius here if he's not striping it today. Okay. I'm going to need to handle that differently than this guy who's real loosey goosey. But you know we may be going into the gorse or into the hay a lot, but he's going to have it. You treat all those people differently. Um, yeah. Your golf courses, by and large, from the ones that I've had a chance to play, allow that to happen. So uh, thank you. They've been a lot of fun to play. I will look forward to hopefully having my boss allow me to expense um, many more trips to many of these far-flung places because you don't build them here too much in New England. We, I, don't, I don't know if, you know, if, it's, if it's an anti-New like, England. I grew up in Connecticut. I, I know. I know. I know. I'm, a, I'm about 45 minutes from where you grew up. I'm in Cheshire, Connecticut right now. And I'm like, you know, I don't know where the closest property is. Probably Sabonic um, as the yeah. crow flies. It would be Sabonic. Um, so maybe I'll breeze down there later this afternoon. It's finally a nice day. Okay. It's spring. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll put in the good word. 
Tom Doak, thank you very much for coming on the Four Press. Thanks, David. Take care. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.